our series on doctrine, and today we would be talking about grace, but he got that wrong. Uh, today is an introduction. Um, a lot of times when we do series like this, I like to do an introduction because I want to lay out, I hope, what is a compelling reason for why we're doing the series. So next week we will be talking about grace, uh, and today we're going to be talking about the reasons behind why we would talk about doctrine at all. So if you would stand to your feet, we're going to, uh, I do not, there we go, okay. Uh, we're going to read the text. Hey, just real quick, I do not have next screen down here. I only have first screen. Uh, I'm going to wait one moment, guys, just for him to give me the cue. We had just, there's a lot of different layers involved here, and we did test all this this week. But a live application is very different. Hey, I don't know if y'all know this, but like one of the things that is a kind of the vision behind what City Church does is that we wanted to create an engaging community that allowed uh, young people specifically to enjoy service. Um, and a lot of that comes from, is the kind of the why behind the what for production. Uh, I was a youth pastor for a very long time. And one of the big issues I had was that a teenager would graduate, and then uh, uh, and then they would make the move uh, to where they weren't going to be in youth group anymore, and they didn't want to go. And the number one reason was it doesn't make any sense. It's super boring. I don't like it. And so when we felt you know uh, that we've had the call to plant a church, one of the big things that was on our heart was that we would be a part of something that was. Uh, it's still not showing up up there. Just in case you were wondering. Um, uh, one of the things that we were wanting was to make sure that young people wanted to be in service. So we do a lot of technology stuff that's probably beyond the means of a church our size. We do that on purpose, but it also means that sometimes we have to work out bugs live in service. So, um, all right. Well, I don't have any jokes to tell. <laughs> They're doing a great job. Can we give it up for them? That's so stressful. Can, can I tell you, like, like the stress level is, they feel like they're doing something wrong, and they're not doing something wrong. And I know y'all don't think they're doing something wrong, so please encourage them. Uh, uh, I'll tell you what, if you can hand me my phone back, I will use that while they work out the, the bugs. So I wish I could memorize every uh, screen. Oh, look at that. There it goes. There it goes. I think we got it. Yeah, give it up for them one more time. They really are heroes. All right, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Can I just tell you, that's a really interesting way for Paul to reference himself, right? I mean, how many of us have seen pastors that insert, instead of prisoner there, uh, you know, bishop, apostle, high apostle, ultimate pastor, lead whatever. Like, like I'm just, I'm making stuff up. I mean, it's like, like what's your superhero tagline that you throw in behind your name? And I just love the humility that Paul has here where he refers to himself as being the prisoner of God, right? Why does he say that? Well, he breaks this down at other points, but the idea here is that, you know, the gospel calls us to do things we naturally don't want to do, but we do them because we are compelled by his grace. So, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who 
saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Uh, the main screen's not flipping now, just, the, just mine is down here. So, so it's on verse 8. I just finished verse 9. <laughs> okay, who saved us and called us to... Okay, I just read that. All right, this is great. Hey, it's all right. We're, we're family here. It's not a problem. We'll get it worked out. Yeah, go ahead and... You can slide that to me. So the lower one's changing down here, but this one's not. There we go. All right. So we are on verse 10. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, verse 12, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Watch what he says here. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So uh, I have entitled the message, Doctrine, What Is It Good For? right? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. And I ask that as we dive into the word today, that we would be um, ministered to, uh, that we would uh, grow in our understanding, uh, that we would also uh, receive kind of that compelling argument that your word makes for us to know the word and to know what it is that we're talking about. In your mighty name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. So, uh, 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 I almost put behind this, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. And I thought, and the only reason that I didn't do that is because I just thought, man, that would be so clickbaitish online, right? Because <laughs> people would be like, what? This pastor's saying doctrine's worth nothing, which is not what I'm saying, but might have gotten them to watch it. I don't know. So uh, the, the key here that I want to kind of start with is in this verse 13, where he says, the pattern of the sound words, okay? The pattern of the sound words. We have a... a a responsibility to follow that which is not just taught from the platform, but this idea of being sound, we'll get to in a moment, is something that is the, the consensus of leadership and the Word itself, okay? And I'll explain a little bit more why that matters. You see, our actions at the end of all of this are an overflow of what we believe, right? We talk about fruit, right? We talk about that thing that we can look at somebody's life and go, okay, man, they, they bore fruit in this way, so this is a good thing. But like, let's pull it back even from the fruit, and let's just talk about our daily actions, the things we do that bear fruit. They are an overflow of what we believe, right? Think about it like this. You're, you're standing at the top of a skyscraper in a big city, and there beside you is another person, and you're having a conversation, and that person says, I read an article that said that man can fly, they just have to really want it. 
And you're thinking to yourself, I don't believe that. But they believe that they can fly. And then they jump off the side of the building, right? Their actions are an overflow of what they believe. They believe they can fly. But what's going to be the fruit of their attempt? They're going to need a lot of prayer or a Jedi to kind of kind of suck them back up, right? It's not going to go well for them, right? Trying to follow through in some type of action based off of what it is that they believe. So, what is doctrine, okay? We're going to look at it from two perspectives. The first is just in the English, right? Let's just go to a dictionary. It is a belief or set of beliefs held and taught by a church, political party, or other group. Point being that not only is it a set of beliefs held and taught, right, but that the church is not the only entity that has doctrine, that has a group of core beliefs, right? Immediately, we think doctrine, we think about the church, but when we really break this idea down, we find out there are a lot of groups around the world that hold doctrine. They have a core group of beliefs that they hold on to and that they teach. Now, if we go to the Greek, the word doctrine that we see translated here is simply instruction or teaching, okay? Instruction or teaching. So, it is not um, when you read like this idea about sound doctrine or doctrine inside of the text when you're reading your Scripture, you're not reading them saying like, oh, well, here's this whole thing that man has put together. It's talking about literally the instruction, the teaching. What did Jesus tell His disciples before He ascended into heaven? He said, go into the world teaching all that I have taught you, right? He says, go and, and lay it all out for them. So, what are you doing? You're going and you are doing doctrine. You're teaching. You are giving instruction, okay? So, now, so what we have to do is we're going to have to kind of understand that that we interchangeably use the word doctrine with both definitions, right? So, when the church is talking about, well, here's doctrine, we are using this English concept of what it is that we believe, but a lot of times in Scripture when it talks about doctrine, it is just talking about instruction that's been given, okay? All right. So, in the English, doctrine is the expansion of a belief, right? So, we've kind of put together our own little booklet about it, right? Okay? Why should I care? Why should I care about doctrine? Okay? Well, I'm going to give you two reasons why you should care. The first one is that we are to discuss it. Biblically, there's a mandate on the, the, the Christian to discuss what it is that you believe. It is a responsibility. So, uh, let's look at Titus chapter 2 here in verse 1. It says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Okay? So, what is… We, we understand that doctrine is teaching, but what does it mean to be sound? It is to be healthy or uncorrupted. Healthy or uncorrupted. Why is it that, that he is saying this? He's saying it because the churches are, are promulgating the gospel with variances in it. They are talking about the gospel, but they are adding their own little kind of thoughts into it, right? And where, where do those thoughts come from? Those thoughts, those variances that we find in the gospel presented then and in the gospel presented today, birth out of a place that says, well, if I were God… I wouldn't do it that way. So, surely God wouldn't do it that way. The problem is, is that that 
puts me on the same level or higher than God, right? Uh, imagine for a moment that your child's response was, well, I wouldn't do it that way, so mom, dad, you can't do it that way, right? We, 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 we innately grasp the fact that kids don't have enough life experience, right? They don't see the picture the way that we see the picture. And we have to, as Christians, this is part of what Paul's language around this kind of prisoner uh, uh, identity is, is that, is that I just don't know what I don't know, and I trust that God does. And so the churches are already at this point grabbing on to this, these, these gospel presentations that are a little bit more compromising, they're a little bit more palatable. We've covered this in 1 Corinthians. Paul's talking about the fact that, that the church there in Corinth, while it's doing some good things, it's also allowing people to come in and live whatever lifestyle they want. And Paul says, you, you just can't do that among the believers. And so these teachings were bringing with them fruits which were corrupt, right? So you got bad teaching, which leads to bad action, which then means that you're going to ultimately have a group of people who are gathering together that are producing bad fruit. Sound doctrine reveals the integrity of the gospel. So if anything is corrupting the integrity of the gospel, it is not sound teaching. If it is in any way trying to come at what the gospel is, it's a red flag that we should throw up. And that's, that's what Paul in so much of his writing is doing with the Gentiles, right? And think about this for a moment. The reason that Paul writing the way that he did to the Gentiles looks so different than what we see in the writings that were to the general Jewish population is that the Jews in their faith, they put all of their children through Bible college as teenagers, right? But by the age of 12, uh, they had been schooled to memorize uh, uh, the entire Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, right? And if they were good at it and they could, they could quote it word for word at age 12, they were given, the boys were given an opportunity to, between age 12 and age 15, to continue in schooling so that then they could kind of learn the theory of Old Testament and maybe themselves become a rabbi, okay? So, so you have a, you have a, a biblically literate group of people, and then you have another group of people that are living among others that have temple prostitutes and child sacrifice. And so immediately you have two different groups of people trying to bring in two different types of variances. So for Paul, that variance typically was around sexuality. Okay, so he talks about it over and over and over because they're constantly bringing in these false sexual identities into the gospel presentation. So, sound doctrine uh, reveals the integrity of the gospel, but it does not protect the integrity of the gospel. Why is that? Because the integrity of the gospel doesn't need protecting. It doesn't need protecting, right? You see, when I reveal some type of corrupt, corrupt gospel, I'm not, I'm not revealing the gospel, 
When I reveal the gospel, it does what it needs to do. When I reveal something else, it's completely independent of itself. So, so it protects the integrity of it because people will be going, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Well, now they have a poor view of what the gospel is. But when they do get the true gospel, it's totally life-changing. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. What does He say? He says here, with first importance, what is that? Top priority, principle. What is that? He's telling them that, that I came to you with what was most important and it was in accordance with the Scriptures. So I'm going to talk to you about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but I am not going to do it in a way that doesn't line up with the text, right? He says that it is in accordance with it. And so the believer's job, right, the believer's job is to communicate the truth, not reimagine it. I want you to hear what I'm saying right now. Like we love, humanity loves to take somebody else's work and slightly plagiarize it, right? I mean, we see this all the time uh, and, and they go, well, you know, I just kind of drew from the source material. Listen, if you are going to make a movie, tell a story, and you can handle the fan blowback, go for it, right? Don't do that when it comes to the gospel, don't do that when it comes to the gospel. These are the words of God. So the responsibility is not simply to just go and discuss things in a way that feels enlightened and super smart while you're, you know, sipping your whiskey and smoking your cigar or whatever your super elite status moment is, right? No, 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 no. It's just to be in accordance with the Scripture. This is what the Word of God says. So I don't have to sit here and be like, oh man, I don't know what to do because I don't like this, but the Bible says it. And so, what, I, no, I just, listen, God's smarter than I am. I don't get it, right? I don't, I don't understand it in the sense of some of this cultural pressure that we've got, but I trust God before I trust the pressures of culture around me, right? Hey, can I tell you something? I trust God before I trust the pressures of my own children, Right? I mean, I hear stories all the time of, of people who are like, well, I decided to do this because my kids were really giving me a hard time to do it, and I just didn't want to fight with them, so I did it. No, 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 no. Like, like, there's a responsibility that sits on our shoulders to know what it is we're talking about, and we have this opportunity to do what? Respect the source material, right? I'm a, I'm a big fan of respecting the source material when it comes to comic books and stuff. Like, when they put out movies and they just destroy the source material, like, it, personally, it drives me crazy. You'll hear me, like, you may not care, like, right? So, uh, 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 the best way I can equate this in a sports analogy for you <laughs> is, is that you probably don't appreciate it when the opposing team cheats, right? Or when the opposing team, like on a college level, is secretly paying their players. So they get the best players and their team is stacked. What are they doing? They're making a mockery of the system. I have to live by one set of rules, but you get to live by whatever set of rules you want to live by, right? And so we look at it and we get frustrated. It's the same thing when it comes to storytelling. We look at the stories that are being told and, and, we, and I think to myself, I'm like, man, this is so disrespectful. Uh, I, I'll give you, I just, I'm a harp for just a moment. J.R. Tolkien, right? J.R. Tolkien, I promise you right here, right now, I am prophesying Amazon is going to destroy 
J.R. Tolkien when they released their, their little mini-series coming in December. Why do I say that? J.R. Tolkien was a God-fearing man. He was very outspoken about it. He was very detailed in his writings, and they don't care about that at all, right? I say respect the source material. This is so important. If we can't we may not be able to agree to do it when it comes to secular writings. We must demand it, though, from the gospel. And you can't respect the source material if you don't know the source material. And that is why when it comes to creative licensing or cheating, so many people get away with it because people don't know the rules. They don't take time to know, right? So many people don't know. And let's take about our nation for a minute. So many people don't know what their rights are. So they don't know when their rights are being trampled on, right? It's a glorious thing for the ones that want to trample on the rights. It's a glorious thing for the ones that want to destroy the story arc or the ones that want to cheat when you, cheat when you don't know what to expect. So you've got to know the source material. And the best way to identify a lie is always to know the truth. It's always to know the truth. So don't live with your head buried in the sand, right? You don't have to be so consumed that it's all that you do, but be aware of the world around you. Most importantly, the Word of God so that you can speak in this moment. So what does he tell us? He tells us that we are to discuss it. And I could have gone on with probably six or seven other uh, points in Scripture that talk about this, from the Old Testament to the New, laying out the case, we are to discuss doctrine. We are to have a part of the conversation. And then we need to know that when we do that, we are protected by it, okay? When we're engaged in the conversation and we know the gospel, we receive protection. What does that look like? 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Conversely, if we go to Jude 1, verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So, when we keep it, when we are a part of the conversation, we are saved. When we do not, when we allow others that are corrupting it to speak into our lives or we ourselves regurgitate that, we find ourselves in a place that's very dangerous. And at the end of the day, I would make the argument that changing God's message is a godless thing to do. Because if you understand who God is and you have respect and awe for God, right, then you're going to have respect and awe for His teaching. So you're not going to change it. You're not going to modify it to make it mean what you want it to mean. I think one of the arguments that seems to be so compelling to this generation that, that when you really remove yourself from the culture just doesn't make any sense is, well, there's no way the writers could have known what the world would look like today right? And you think, well, that kind of sounds silly. But that argument gets made over and over, and young people go, oh, you're right. Like, how would they know that? Okay, here's the problem. The only reason you make that argument, and the only reason that you can engage in that argument is you don't have a proper view of who God is. God does not exist in some, like, vacuum of time that has a stopwatch on it right? God is everywhere at all times, in all things, through all things, and He can speak about whatever He wants, whenever He wants, about whatever He wants, whenever it happens. And God's truths are the same yesterday, today, forever. It's not like we're going to step into eternity and God's going to be like, hey, you know all that stuff about living righteously and holy? I was just kidding, right? 
But when we come to that place where we go, well, you know, I, there's no way God could have known what society would look like or, you know, the writers, how it would have advanced. And they're just, you're stripping away the identity. So you are creating a godless text, a text that is not managed and, and controlled by God. This is why we, why, why we use the, the, the language that we believe that the Scriptures are inerrant, that we believe that they are God's breathed Word. Even when people come in and make all these arguments, well, you know, the Bible used to have these extra letters in it and these extra books, and now they don't. Right, because we believe that the Spirit of God at work through man can refine and protect His Word, and that's exactly what He did. So anytime that something else crept its way in, men and women of God rose up by the Spirit of God inside of them and said, hey, this isn't right, and they made a change, right? Why? Because God is sovereign and capable. And so what we have is what God wants for us. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed." As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. What is he saying? False teaching is dangerous for you and all who receive it. False teaching is a dangerous thing. It is not a live and let live. We're going to agree to disagree, right? And I hear people all the time that use this type of, you know, I know that most churches believe and you fill in the blank, whatever it is, and they tag it with, but I don't. So I just agree to disagree, right? That's a really dangerous statement. Now, are there some nuanced things that we can agree to disagree on? Yes, definitely. But I would say this, that if you hear something being taught, right, from a place that you respect, a Bible teacher you respect, and you don't know that you agree with it, don't just slap this statement on it and go, well, it doesn't really matter. Ask the question, why do I not believe it, right? Have an intelligent conversation, maybe with the pastor, the teacher, or somebody in your life. Do some research. Figure out why, so that your statement is not, ah, I just don't believe that, so I just agree to disagree. Because here's what happens, right? This is the people who, who slap this statement on, they get into a community group and they infect the community group. Because they sit there in that little community group and they go, eh, I don't really believe that. And, you know, I think the pastor's wrong. And they don't have any real and honest conversations around it. And they're not willing to receive anything. And I'm not speaking about this from some hypothetical place. I'm telling you, like, firsthand, this is, this is toxic stuff. This is where the enemy comes and, and, and stirs in the hearts of people to bring destruction to the community and to the church. And, and so, as a leader, one of the things I'm trying to grow in is identifying that when somebody is doing this, there's something, there's something awry, and false teaching is dangerous, right? Now, does that mean that I get it right all the time? I do not get it right all the time. I, I want to I point one more thing out, okay? Uh, you can, there is a, a level of humility that um, a leader should walk in, and it's difficult to talk about because then, you know, when you talk about your own humility, you're doing away with your own humility. Uh, but let me, let me try to word it this way. So I, I, I hope that the testimony of my kids, if you were to talk to them, would be when dad does something he shouldn't do, loses his cool in a way that he shouldn't, that he's very quick to apologize, that he walks in, I look my kids in the eye, I'm sorry, what you did was wrong, 
but what I did was also wrong, right? I, I want to be that type of dad. I want to be that type of pastor. So am I going to tell you that everything that I bring to the table is always going to be right 100% of the time? Absolutely not. But I will tell you that if somebody comes and, 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 and I begin to see, man, I've been teaching this wrong, you, you better know I don't have any issue getting up here and going, hey, guys, I said this last week or I said this two weeks ago, and it was a little bit more nuanced than I thought, and I got it wrong, and I'm sorry, right? Um, the idea is not that, like, you identify somebody that's never wrong in what they're saying. The idea is that, that, that somebody is in pursuit of sound teaching. So false teaching isn't just a pastor or teacher issue, though, okay? It, like I said, it gets into small groups. It gets into uh, workplaces, and people begin to teach and say things that just simply are not true. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough, right? What is Paul telling them? He says that you've got people all around you that are bringing this stuff. And instead of standing up and going, hey, this is, this, is a, this is a gospel issue, right? These aren't secondary issues. This isn't about, you know, uh, whether or not you wear a suit jacket to church on Sunday, right? This is gospel stuff. We will just lump it all there. Well, we don't agree, but what does it matter? Well, Paul's making the argument that it matters for safety, for protection, right? So what is it? Why should I care? And more importantly now, I want to get to answering the question, when is it established? When is it that a doctrine becomes an established thing? So the, 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 the statement that gets made a lot today is that, you know, well, you know, a doctrine written in the 1800s is heresy, right? They go, oh, man, the church didn't even teach that until 1847, and this one guy said this thing, and now all of a sudden the church is teaching it. And I'll just show you how crazy the church is, right? Well, can I tell you something? Just because a doctrine is written, in, written out in the 1840s does not mean that it is heresy. And Dwight's here to agree with us all, right? False, not true, okay? Listen, doctrine is a response to bad teaching, right? So the English understanding of doctrine, the way that we tend to use it, is that, is, is that we have something that we have now put into a written form that there's a general consensus on, and the church will then begin to talk about it a little bit more frequently. Why? Because there is bad teaching that has arised. It doesn't mean that the church didn't believe that before. Now, can that happen? Certainly that can happen. But the majority of the time, these arguments, they're just, they're just, people who want to be difficult or don't have a picture of what the gospel is. So doctrine is a response to bad teaching. Bad teaching is a response to pride, right? Why would I not teach what's in Scripture? I go back to the statement because I wouldn't do it that way. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a pride issue going on inside of me, right? Well, I wouldn't do it that way, so I must be more loving than the God of this Scripture, so we've got to do it. The church has been getting it wrong for 2,000 years. Now, I get it. Like, I probably am a little bit nerdier than some of you, and I might spend a little bit more time listening to other pastors and diving into commentaries and stuff, uh, and I'm okay with maybe just a little bit. But can I just tell you, I hear all the time when I'm listening to pastors 
say things like, well, the church has gotten it wrong for 2,000 years, and I'm here by the grace of God for revelation. And I immediately, like, I'm like, this is a clown show, right? Like, I, I could never imagine thinking so much of myself that I, I would even make that statement, right? But, but it is becoming a more and more uh, commonplace thing. And so, and then it becomes cultural ta talking points, right? Well, let me tell you why we're different from other churches. Do you, do you understand, like, there are definitely going to be some things that distinguish the different churches. Paul doesn't ever condemn that, right? They all kind of have their own sense of grace about them, the way that they love people. He doesn't condemn that, right? But when it comes to gospel, when it comes to the Word of God, like, those variances are not allowed. There, whenever there's a variance there, Paul uh, or any of the New Testament authors are condemning it. They're saying, no, 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 what you're teaching is not true. Why does that matter? Because it hurts people, right? And, and let's just imagine for a moment, right, that, well, I'm a God-fearing, Bible-believing person. I love Jesus, but I have bought into some bad doctrine, and I stand before God. Am I going to go to hell for that bad doctrine? I'm going to argue probably not. I'm not going to say that I find a biblical argument that says, okay, well, you said this thing that's not true, so you're going to hell. You see, that's not the issue. And if that's your issue, that's an issue of pride and selfishness because you're more concerned with yourself than you are with others. When you buy into bad doctrine, the fear should be that I would lead somebody to not know Jesus, that they would take it and go to a level that does remove them from the saving knowledge of Jesus. Look here in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 8. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality. I will pause here and just say, this interpretation here is a legitimate interpretation. This is a verb. This is the action of homosexuality, okay? Uh, enslavers, liars, perjurers. And just, let me just say this to you. You might think, well, why would you emphasize that, Pastor Jim? Well, because if I don't emphasize it, then people don't understand what the Scripture says, and then people come and do that thing where they're doing false teaching and bad doctrine, and they're saying, well, this, anyway. <sighs> and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So, what is he saying here? This is, this, is, this is good. The law is for those who ignore sound doctrine, all right? The law is there for those that ignore sound doc doctrine. These sins that people are engaged in, that the law is meant to curtail and push people away from, they are the fruit of unsound doctrine or false teaching. So, what Paul's saying is, is that when somebody receives sound doctrine, and they receive that and make that a part of their life, they don't need the law because they don't walk in a way that needs an officer to come and say, you're out of line. You're out of line, right? So, adhering to sound doctrine, right, produces fruit free from a need for the law, all right? Let me try to give you some perspective maybe of how this looks, right? In the 1800s, right, we saw the rise of popularity of these steam-powered automobiles, 
right? So you can go do some research of this. There were, I think the first one was invented in the late 1600s. By the time you get to the 1800s, there are actually a lot of steam-powered automobiles moving around. They, they called them people movers from the best of my research. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I am like some big automobile gearhead, right? Okay, basic research, 1800s. There's a number of these. And in London, In 1865, they passed a law requiring a man on foot to walk in front of the vehicle, blowing a horn and waving a red flag. (laughs) So you've got a vehicle that is meant to move people faster from point A to point B that now is constricted by a man whose job it is, he wakes up in the morning, gets his horn and his red flag, and he walks in front of the steam-powered automobile all day, waving his red flag and blowing his horn, right? That's the law in London, 1865. In 1885, Carl Benz of Germany developed the first combustible engineer uh, engine car, right? Okay, uh, I'm sure some of you are familiar with the Mercedes-Benz, right? That becomes the result of this. So 1865, they're walking around in London, blowing a horn, waving a red flag in front of steam-powered vehicles. And in workshops, people are trying to figure out how to make them better and better, and they end up with the combustible engine. And then in May of 1901, Connecticut, right here in the United States of America, established the first speed limit, okay? 1901, they put a speed limit sign up, 12 miles per hour in the city, 15 miles per hour in the rural areas. So when you got outside the city and the country, you could go 15 miles per hour, okay? All right, so why a speed limit? Why a man with a horn and a red flag walking down the street, right? Well, on some level, they had to come up with some idea that this was necessary. And there's two reasons why in their minds it could have been necessary, fear, right? Oh, man, you just don't know what's going to happen when these steam-powered vehicles are on the road. They're going to kill us all, right? They're going to transform, and we've got to have a man with a red flag there to keep this thing under control, right? Okay, fear, right, or need. Why need? Well, think about the speed limit for a moment, right? If, If everybody is just being responsible and driving at a safe pace and people aren't getting hurt, there's not a conversation around we need a speed limit because the speed limit is to make sure that people drive safe in respect to others. And so they come up with these laws, with these ideas, because people don't use common sense. And because they don't use common sense, that creates fear that people won't use common sense. And so our world begins to compile all of its beliefs on what we need to do and how we need to operate based off of what? The fact that people are not innately good. And Paul's argument is that if you receive sound doctrine, right, it's going to change who you are, okay? And when it changes who you are, then you are going to put forth the effort to be a good person. The law is not necessary, right? Because you're going to see your fellow human being and you're going to respect them, okay? So, um, slightly different way to look at this, right? Okay. I have a good wife, all right? I'm very blessed. I'm very lucky to have an amazing wife. Now, what if in my home I began to tell her that God told me that 
her job was to fix me nachos and let me watch all the sci-fi I wanted to all the time, right? Maybe God's telling you to watch football or baseball while you eat your nachos and your wings, right? So if I were to start saying that and I were to start going, man, I just, I've been having some great prayer time and let me tell you what the Holy Spirit's been revealing to me. I need nachos and sometimes wings will be good with it. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And then I, I want to watch Star Wars for hours and hours. And then I'll switch over to like Battlestar Galactica and Quantum Leap and start, you know, whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah. They know. Stargate. Um, right? Okay. So I might be professing the truth that it's a good, I have a good wife, right? So I've got part of it right, you know. But I start saying these things, right, that are not true, right? So. The thing is, is that I can deliver it, I can declare it all day long, but without scriptural support and consensus from church leaders, it's a lie. And I can say all day long, man, this is what God's showing me. So what happens is, is that there is a need then for me to be called out. And that's where the law comes into place. Hey, you're being abusive. Like you're taking advantage here, right? Now, does my wife make me good food sometimes? Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? I'm not going to lie. She makes these special dumplings out of a Dungeons and Dragons cookbook (laughs) 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 that my daughter has that are incredible. And there's no witchcraft involved, right? It's just good food. Um, You know, but it's, it's a ton of work. And so do I want her to make those occasionally? Yes, I want her to make those occasionally. But I'm going to tell you, like, she knows and she'll tell you, I show up at home and I cook just as often as anybody else, right? And I cook meals that I know my family wants to have. Here's my point, is that that naturally flows within the home. Like, that's a natural flow. If I were saying, God told me to tell you to do this, that would be an abuse, right? And then the church would hopefully have the type of leadership that would step up and go, that's, a, that's an abuse, right? So, so if we're following sound doctrine, we're not behaving like that. We're not talking like that. We're not acting and treating each other like that. So the law is not necessary. And Paul's argument here is, is like, if you'll just grab onto sound doctrine, like you're going to escape a ton of these things that lead to sin. So now Paul encounters this false doctrine firsthand, right? Um, uh, And so let's take a look at this as we wrap up Acts chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul has come in, shared the gospel. They've gotten saved. He moves on his way, and another group comes behind him and says, hey, by the way, you've got to be circumcised. Okay? Now, verse 2, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So just look at this process that's in place, okay? Paul comes in, declaring the gospel. People are getting saved. Another group of people, they are uh, zealots, former Jews that have gotten saved, and they are taking this old doctrine And they're laying it in and going, okay, listen, I know that you got saved by the gospel Paul presented. Now you've also got to do this. So the problem is 
can, that, or the, 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 the issue that we have is that Paul says, this is what the gospel looks like. This is it in its entirety. Now, the only thing lacking is your testimony. You've got to start talking about it. You've got to be engaged in the story. And another group of people are going, no, 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 there's more to do. And Paul's saying, no, 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 there's nothing more to do. Yes, there's definitely more to do. Huge argument. So what do they do? They're going to go to church leadership, okay? And so you would go, well, Paul is church leadership. Well, here's the good thing. A good church leader is going to have people in their life that they will go to when they have difficult questions, right? Okay. I have pastors in my life that I would go to and I will sit down with and ask questions and contact and go, hey, I'm in a disagreement. I'm not understanding this. So Paul has that, right? He has the counsel that he's the apostles he's going to go to, right? So Church leadership responds. They get there. They're in Jerusalem. They're beginning to lay out the case. Do we need this? Do we not need that? They refer back to the Scripture, their understanding of Jesus' teachings. And look here in verse 15. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood." So what, he, what they say is, guys, I'm sorry, but the whole circumcision thing, that's not the case. You're not going to have to do that. There are things you need to know, right? There are things that you need to know about life and about walking in this gospel life. Getting circumcised is not going to be one of them. And it said that they rejoiced, which you can imagine why. They were excited that they weren't going to have to do that, right? So at the end of the day, I, I, I see this as being our first test in Scripture where we establish the version of doctrine we see in the English. And that is where there was a disagreement because there were two teachings and they had to decide which one was, which one was the case, right? And some religions, they determine this by going what was said last is the truth. And so if you go inside of their text and it says, you know, you can't eat soup here, and then it says you must eat soup here, the way they resolve it, well, the last one that was said is the truth, right? Okay, but we believe that the Scripture is the Word of God. It's not contradictory. So if something seems on the surface to be contradictory, we need to be asking the question, what's going on here? That's what's happening here. And they're, they're putting together this doctrine. So it's all kind of weighty, and it's like, oh, man, that's a lot of work, Pastor Jim. Can't I just have Jesus and ignore doctrine, right? It's too controversial. I don't want to be engaged in that. Let me give you another illustration about my beautiful wife. She's a good wife, and she's a beautiful wife, right? So, um, I, I'm, I, I, yes, I'm nerdy. I'm also a very tender-hearted guy. You know, I've told you before, it doesn't take much to make me cry. Uh, I cried watching Pete's Dragon, okay? That's just like my measurement there. And I didn't mean to, and Caitlin called me, and so now it's just part of my reality, right? So, so I, I do. I get emotional pretty easily. I'm very tender-hearted. I love my family. And so it would not be uncommon for me to just feel like I love my wife and I want to tell her that I love her, right? So imagine with me that I, for a moment, come to her and I look her in her eyes and I'm telling her how amazing she is and how much I love her and how beautiful she is and how I love her long flowing black hair and brown eyes and, you know, and, and, and her blue lipstick, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and you might think, oh, that's so sweet until you see my wife and then you would go, who was he describing, right? 
there's a problem here. You know what I'm saying? Because my wife doesn't have those attributes, right? There's nothing wrong with those attributes. They're not the attributes of my wife. So if I'm going to tell my wife I love these things about her, I'd better be telling her things that are true, right? Okay? So in your passion for the gospel, I'm saved. I'm a believer. I believe in Jesus. I believe in the Word of God. It would probably add a lot of value in your daily life to actually know the attributes of the God that you serve. And so in the coming weeks, we're going to talk about a few of those. Uh, There are way too many to cover uh, uh, in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, These are picked uh, for a couple of reasons. I'm going to go through them real quick. But the the two primary reasons, one, I believe that they need to be discussed because of cultural issues. So they're a little bit more relevant than others. And some of them because they are just solid uh, doctrines of the church that, that that we have held on to for 2,000 years. And so I'm going to be breaking down the arguments against, the arguments for, some context as we move through. But we're, next week, we're going to be talking about grace. Then we're going to talk about the Trinity. We're going to talk about revelation. We're going to talk about judgment. We're going to talk about incarnation. And then we're going to end on Easter Sunday with the resurrection. All right? Uh, and like I said, these are just a few of, uh, of these doctrines, but they are going to be a, they're going to give you a perspective of what we at the church believe, okay? And I want to, I want to encourage you, and you can do this online, you can do this right here in person. If you've got questions, ask them, right? If you're going, man, I've heard it said this way, or Pastor Jim, or if you want to go to an elder, I've heard this before, and I don't know, I don't understand, here are these arguments. We want to, it's a, it, let's sit down and talk, like, let's just have a conversation and, and, and process through it. Maybe I'll grow some. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't deflect from conversation because I think that, well, I'm right and you just have to suck it up. You know, I, I personally want to make sure that we're doing what is healthy and what is positive, godly instruction. But I will tell you this, everything that we would cover in doctrine will always support the gospel. Because if it doesn't support the gospel... It is a problem for us. And there have been a lot of bad teachings that churches have put out over the years that if they had simply asked the question, does it support the gospel, they would have said, no, we probably shouldn't be teaching this thing. We probably shouldn't be involved in this organization. We probably shouldn't be doing this activity because it doesn't support the gospel. That's what we're called to do. We're we're called to protect and present the gospel. Amen. Go ahead and stand to your feet. I want to pray with you. Listen, if you don't know Jesus as Lord of your life and you're here today, we want to invite you to know Jesus. We have prayer ministry teams that will be available in the back. They will be happy to share with you a little bit more about who Jesus is, why we declare Jesus as King, why we sing about Him. Uh, If you are sick in body, if you are needing a touch in your finances, in your marriage, in in your employment, whatever it is, listen, you know what the Scripture says to do? The Scripture says, go to the elders and allow them to pray with you. So we don't have to go at difficult moments alone, right? Um, And and, and also, don't, don't be so naive to think, well, you know, I'm the only one that's ever been through this. It's just not the case. There are people who walk through difficult things, and they've got testimonies right here in this church. So if you're in need, prayer ministry team is available. I make myself available. We want to be a community that is seeing the miraculous hand of God at work. We see God doing what only God can do. Amen? All right, I want to pray for you, and then we'll get out of here. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your uh, mercies, your grace. They're new every day. 
I pray that as we take time over the next couple of months to uh, look at some of the, the, the teachings that the church has held on to over the past 2,000 years, I pray, Lord, that we would do it faithfully, Lord, so we need your direction, we need your wisdom uh, and guidance in this, uh, and, and I pray that we would do so with conviction, not just that this is for somebody else, Lord, but that w- each of us would receive it, and that ultimately we would all be better equipped to be in the conversation with the world around us, presenting uh, an unfiltered and unadulterated gospel, and freeing up the Holy Spirit to do what He needs to be doing. We love you and praise you, and we ask these things in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. We love you guys. As always, have a great week. We'll see you next week. Go change your world. So really in this eye.